Hey, podcast family, welcome back. Welcome to part two of our two-part series. If you missed part one, you got to go back. Go, go back, because you're missing 50% of the info. In this episode, we're going to wrap up our discussion on dermatoses of pregnancy, and we're going to focus on atopic eruptions of pregnancy and ICP, intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy. And we're going to throw in a weird one considered by some to be the fifth dermatoses of pregnancy. But others say, no, leave that alone. It's weird enough. It's got its own issues. Just leave that over there alone, isolated where it needs to be. That's called the triple P pustular psoriasis of pregnancy. So let's get to part two right now. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Let's do ICP first, intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy. Yeah, we've covered that in the past episode, but in this session, remember, I wanted to stick on the skin manifestations, presentation, what it looks like, and how to work it up. But of course, we can't talk about ICP without giving a little excerpt, a little input about delivery wrecks, because this is also problematic. The take-home message right at the start is that this can be bad, and it can bring along three friends, other liver pathology, preeclampsia, and stillbirth. Remember those three issues. ICP can bring with it other liver pathology, we're going to cover that in a minute, preeclampsia, and stillbirth. In contrast to the other pregnancy-specific dermatoses, intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy generally has no primary skin lesions. ICP should be considered in any woman who develops new onset pruritus without a rash in the second half of pregnancy. Although ICP is not associated with a rash, the intensity of the itching can lead to the development of excoriations or of nodularis, which may be mistaken for a rash. If you've never heard that term before, nodularis. There's a good chance if you've got kids, you may have seen this thing. This is nothing more than a chronic skin reaction that's brought about by persistent itching or scratching. I remember when my little girl was small and she had some itchiness behind her skin, that ended up being eczema. But before the eczema became visible, she had these little hard, these little bumps that developed just as a response, kind of as a reactivity uh, marker for chronic itching. Well, that's nodularis. By the book, this is, quote, a chronic skin disorder, which is more reactionary than primary pathological, caused by the presence of hard, extremely itchy bumps that are known as nodules, all right? So parigo nodularis, short of it is, it's a reaction to intense itching, so you've got the scratch marks, those are excoriations, and then you can have parigo nodularis. All right, podcast family. Now, as we're talking about ICP, remember that ACOG recommends universal screening, of course, for hepatitis B surface antigen, as well as hepatitis C virus. But there's a lot of other liver pathology out there that the patient may have. And a small subset of individuals with ICP will first present with intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy. And then you do a workup and you're like, oh, you've got some other underlying liver disease. So remember, as a take-home message, as a clinical pearl, patients with ICP ICP should be investigated for other liver pathologies. And yes, in some studies, the first marker of the later development of hepatitis C, that's C as in Charlie, is ICP in pregnancy. 
So when a patient presents with what you think is ICP, and we'll do that presentation and workup in just a minute, don't forget to look for other things. Don't just stop there with that diagnosis. Get a right upper quadrant ultrasound, do a complete hepatitis panel, and then even postpartum, some experts recommend rechecking a hepatitis panel to make sure you haven't missed a diagnosis. A large population-based study found an association between ICP and several chronic liver diseases like hepatitis C as well as non-alcohol-associated cirrhosis. So be sure to do your due diligence when you make this diagnosis. Remember we said that ICP brings friends? Well, that's just the first friend it brings. Thanks, ICP. (laughs) And that's other liver pathology. So remember that. The second thing it brings is preeclampsia. Weird. Now, it doesn't cause preeclampsia. These are just two parallel associations, all right? Remember, associations don't always imply cause and effect. But there is this in the data, this published link between ICP and the subsequent development of preeclampsia. Preeclampsia has been diagnosed two to five-fold higher in ICP patients. And this is usually the case if bile acids are over 40 micromoles per liter. Remember, the delivery cutoff is 100, but you don't have to be at 100 to get other problems. Even though this association has been known for some time, it was confirmed once again in a separate meta-analysis published in 2020. The lead author was Arafa, and the title is Association Between Intrahepatic Cholestasis of Pregnancy and Risk for Gestation diabetes and preeclampsia, a systematic review and meta-analysis that was published out of hypertension in pregnancy. So we've talked about the associated liver pathology. That's friend number one. Then we talked about preeclampsia. That's friend number two. And then the third friend that it brings is stillbirth. This is a real issue. That's why antepartum fetal surveillance has to be done in these patients. And then delivery considerations, which we'll cover in just a minute, are based on that total serum bile acid level. The clinical presentation of ICP is based on itchiness or pruritus, and it's supported by the presence of elevated total serum bile acids and the absence of diseases associated with similar lab findings. Diagnosis can be a clinical one alone, and it does not require any specific biopsy. And even though some advocate just using clinical diagnosis alone, the truth is you really do need that total serum bile acid because that's going to help guide delivery, especially if we're talking about early delivery, all right? So if you think somebody has it, go ahead and get the serum total bile acids. But just remember that sometimes the itchiness can actually present first and then the serum bowel as it's present later. I like how the authors of a 2022 publication put it. The title of their publication is Bile Acids in Intrahepatic Cholestasis of Pregnancy, which of course is very fitting because that's exactly what we're talking about. The authors state, quote, The Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, no, that's not here in the U.S., that's our friends across the pond, the RCOG guidelines emphasize that in the presence of typical clinical symptoms and abnormal levels of hepatic function tests, an increased concentration of bile acids is not necessary for the diagnosis of ICP. The definitive confirmation for the diagnosis, according to the RCOG, is the resolution of clinical symptoms and normalization of laboratory markers after delivery. They go on to say, it's important to repeat the laboratory tests every week when the initial level of total aminotransferase and bile acids are normal due to the fact that pruritus may precede an increase in serum bile acids by several weeks. 
Nevertheless, 23% of all pregnancies are affected by itching of some type, but only a minority are caused by ICP, end quote. Before we move on to the clinical diagnosis of ICP, I don't want us to just think that ICP only brings those three other issues, liver pathology, risk of preeclampsia, and stillbirth. Those are bad in and of itself. But in some studies, it's also been linked to fetal growth restriction, fetal intolerance to labor, and meconium passage. So the take-home message is ICP isn't just the skin, it's got other issues. All right, we've already stated that the clinical diagnosis of ICP is based on pruritus symptoms and it's supported by the presence of elevated total serum bile acids and the absence of other diseases that are associated with similar lab findings and symptoms. Diagnosis can be clinical alone. But the benefit of getting total serum bile acids is that it helps guide you in terms of delivery and it's a prognostic factor. Remember said, higher risk of preeclampsia with a total serum bile acids of 40 and more. And at 100, then you should really consider delivery. And just for the record, we have to say what a normal serum bile acid is to put it in context. A normal serum bile acid should be less than 10. So greater than 10 micromoles per liter is the definition of elevated total serum bile acids. All right, so that is abnormal. Anything more than 10 is abnormal. However, this cutoff of when to actually make the diagnosis has changed. In the past, it was used as 10 as a first cutoff. But we knew that while that was super sensitive, it wasn't really specific for any real fetal morbidity. So then it got raised to around 40. But the latest adjustment based on new published data is that fetal morbidity and even mortality really is elevated at a total serum bile acids of 100 micromoles per liter. All right, so don't get those numbers all confused. When does a patient have elevated total serum bile acids? That's 10. After that, you've got ICP. That's a good working diagnosis. But the rest of the numbers are just for prognostication and management. So at 40 and above, you got to bring her back quickly and uh, be carefully watching her blood pressure because of that risk of preeclampsia. And if you ever get to 100, which is really, really high, guys, think about that. That's 10 times normal. If you ever get to 100 micromoles per liter, then delivery can be considered. Some authors have considered the breaking up of ICP into mild, moderate, and severe levels with those that are between 10 and 40 as mild ICP, those between 40 and 99 micromoles per liter as moderate ICP, and then those above 100 as severe ICP. In terms of delivery, the ACOG Committee Opinion 831 on medically indicated late preterm and early term deliveries does list ICP as one of the maternal conditions which may require delivery prior to 39 weeks. In women with peak serum bile acids that are between 40 and 99, in other words, in that moderate ICP range with no other risk factors, it's been published that the known risk of stillbirth is actually similar to the background risk until a around 36 weeks, and by 37 weeks, most would argue for delivery. 
with total serum bile acids at or above 100 micromoles per liter, then don't have the patient go past 36 weeks in zero days. Delivery is recommended by the ACOG and SMFM at 36 weeks in zero. So as a quick recap, serum bile acids greater than 100 deliver at 36 weeks. Serum bile acids less than 100 between 40 and 99 in that moderate ICP range. Consider delivery between 36 weeks and zero, but don't let them go past 39 weeks and zero days, with most arguing for delivery as safest at 30 37 weeks and zero. First-line treatment for ICP is ursodeoxycholic acid, or UDCA. This usually begins at a dose of 10 to 15 milligrams per kilo per day, and that's divided in two to three doses. Again, the dosing of ursodeoxycholic acid is 10 to 15 milligrams per kilo per day in two to three divided dosages. If pruritus persists beyond two weeks, then you can titrate to a maximum of 20 milligrams per kilo per day. And before we leave ICP, remember, we can make the patient's symptoms better, but it doesn't take away the underlying pathophysiology and the risks to the child because that damage has been set when the serum bowel acids rose just above 10. Of course, the worse that they rise, the worse the risk. But the idea is just because she feels better, she is not out of harm's way. Before we leave this diagnosis of ICP, we do need to give a quick word about the subsequent use of birth control pills in women with this diagnosis. Historically, this was pretty controversial, and it was considered a contraindication to use estrogen-containing birth control in women with this previous history. However, as birth control pills have lowered their dose of estrogen, the truth is that getting pregnant is a bigger risk than the risk associated with birth control pill use. So if you go to the CDC medical eligibility chart, history of cholestasis is one of the conditions that they discuss. And if it's just pregnancy-related, not birth control-related, then actually they classify birth control pill use as Category 2, which is the light green box. (laughs) That means that the potential risk may be justified because of the potential advantages. Of course, there's no contraindication for using a non-hormonal agent or anything progesterone-related. Those are all Category 1, which is the traditional green box. But if the cholestasis was birth control pill-induced, then that actually changes. There, the birth control pill goes from a number 2 to a number 3 category, which is a light pink. But nonetheless, that's pretty rare. So it's part of patient education. Do I give these patients birth control pills? Absolutely. But I give them something that's very low dose. And I do that because the risk of pregnancy is much higher than any theoretical risk of a low dose pill. However, having said that, I really do try to guide them towards a progestin-only method because I just think LARCs work better. And LARCs in general, because they're non-estrogen containing, are category one across the board. All right, podcast family, that means we've covered three of the four traditionally accepted dermatoses of pregnancy. We've just covered ICP, the only one without a known rash. And now let's get into atopic eruptions in pregnancy. Now we are at atopic eruptions in pregnancy. This accounts for over 50% of pruritic dermatoses during gestation. This is an umbrella term for three conditions, eczema in pregnancy, parigo of pregnancy, and pruritic folliculitis of pregnancy. 
atopic eruption of pregnancy may occur in atopic subjects or others without a previous history of atopic conditions. The etiology for this is unknown. Now remember, of course, dermatoses like this can happen outside of pregnancy. Anybody can get eczema. But we're talking about those that have a first presentation during pregnancy. Two-thirds of women with atopic eruptions of pregnancy will have widespread eczematous changes, in other words, dry patches on the skin, whereas the other third will have papular lesions. As a group, these pose no adverse risk to the fetus. Diagnosis is generally aided by a history of atopy and by rash characteristics. In other words, it's a clinical exam finding. Eczema in pregnancy has the appearance of traditional eczema, but with a pregnancy onset. It's the most common pregnancy-specific dermatoses. For eczema of pregnancy, the typical skin lesions show dry, thickened, scaly, red patches that involves the extremity flexures. It can involve the nipples, neck, and even the face. In contrast, parigo of pregnancy, also known as parigo gestationis, is characterized by 5 to 10 millimeter itchy erythematous plaques or nodules commonly found on the extensor surfaces and the trunk. So don't forget that big clinical pearl and that distinguishing characteristic. Eczema involves the extremity flexures, whereas parigo of pregnancy involves the extensor surfaces. Lastly, paritic folliculitis of pregnancy is rare and notable for small erythematous follicular papules and sterile pustules predominantly on the trunk. Onset for all of these conditions is during the second or the third trimester, although eczema in pregnancy in general can develop earlier than the other two conditions. For each of these three manifestations, skin lesions and pruritus are usually controlled with low or moderate potency topical corticosteroids and some oral antihistamines. For severe eczema, second-line agents include short course of ultra-potent topical corticosteroids. Remember, topical is always the best way to go. However, in some cases, oral corticosteroids or narrowband ultraviolet B therapy or even cyclosporin may be required to help relieve symptoms. Now remember, we're talking about things that start in pregnancy. Yes, women can have atopic eczema and then get pregnant. And that's a whole other topic because the question is, can they continue their biological agents like Dupixent? I don't want to get into that. That's a pre-existing condition, but we can talk about that in another episode. Remember, we're talking things that just happen for the first time during pregnancy. These atopic lesions commonly resolve with delivery, but they may persist for up to three months postpartum. Recurrence with subsequent pregnancies is variable, but it's not uncommon for that to happen. And lastly, as we've already stated before, with these atopic dermatoses of pregnancy, there are no known risks to the fetus. All right, podcast family, we have now covered the four traditional dermatoses, but I told you that we were going to talk about one extra one, one that some consider the fifth dermatoses. This has a lot of morbidity associated with it, so we do have to talk about it. So let's wrap up the episode talking about the triple P, that's pustular psoriasis of pregnancy. Postular psoriasis of pregnancy. Here's a clinical pearl right off the bat for this. This can be really bad. Bad for the mother and bad for the baby because this increases stillbirth risk. And this is because of placental insufficiency. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Historically, it has incorrectly been referred to as impetigo herpetiformis. 
man, people like that word herpes form in dermatology. So let's get rid of that one, all right? But remember, triple P was the old impetigo herpetiformis. But this disease is linked to neither bacterial colonization like impetigo, nor is it related to herpes simplex virus. So impetigo is wrong and herpetiformis is wrong. So stick with pustular psoriasis of pregnancy or the triple P. Triple P is also referred to as generalized pustular psoriasis of pregnancy, as this disease is thought to be a variant of generalized pustular psoriasis. The first case of triple P was recorded in 1966, and again, thankfully, it's very rare. Between Europe and the U.S. data, since 2000, only about 350 cases have been recorded. Now, surely that can be underreporting, and people see it and then don't, you know, either write it up or uh, send it in for a confirmation. But in the whole take-home idea here is that this this is definitely rare. Controversy exists around Triple P's inclusion as a fifth dermatosis because it's more likely to be a variant of disease rather than a pregnancy-specific eruption. However, most experts agree on the classification of Triple P as some kind of dermatosis of pregnancy owing to the importance of early recognition and treatment. In brief, the clinical presentation of triple P includes the formation of sterile cutaneous scaly pustules which tend to begin in the skin folds and then spread centrifugally, all right? So they start in the extremities in the skin folds and then move towards the center of the body. Fever, diarrhea, dehydration, tachycardia, and even delirium and seizures are all possible symptoms. And the reason is this has electrolyte disturbances, namely hypocalcemia. All right. So triple P, remember, just isn't in the skin. It reflects something else going on. So these patients can have leukocytosis, hypocalcemia, reduced vitamin D levels, and an elevated ESR. The effect on the fetus can be severe, primarily because of placental insufficiency. Stillbirth, neonatal death, and even fetal abnormalities have been associated with triple P. These eruptions usually occur during the third trimester. Most cases, however, thankfully do resolve postpartum. There's a nice review of Triple P in a 2018 publication in the Journal of Women's Health, with the first author being Trivedi, and I'll put that in the link of references online. For diagnosis, clinical suspicion is key here because the diagnosis must be made correctly because it's linked to stillbirth risk. Biopsy of the lesion is recommended. Diagnosis is based on histopathology that shows the typical features of pustular psoriasis. Direct and indirect skin immunofluorescence are negative in this case. Remember, this is a different pathophysiology, so definitely order immunofluorescence because it should be negative. Maternal prognosis is very good with early diagnosis and aggressive treatment. However, the increased risk of perinatal mortality may persist despite maternal treatment. So the same goes for triple P as for ICP. These two conditions share that in common. We can make the patient symptomatically better, but it unfortunately does not reduce the fetal risk. Corticosteroids are regarded as the gold standard in the treatment of triple P. Prednisone is used most typically at a dose of 15 to 30 milligrams per day, with refractory cases requiring an increase of up to 80 milligrams per day. 
As we end this topic of triple P, remember this is associated with fetal risks. So antepartum fetal surveillance and consideration for late preterm, early term delivery should be considered here. Now, it's all consensus opinion and ACOG doesn't actually give a guidance for this. But the idea is try not to have the patient go past 37 weeks because there is a very well accepted risk for stillbirth with this condition. All right, podcast family, do you see why we did this in two parts? I mean, that's a lot of info. That's a lot to cover at one time, and then people zone out. That's why we broke it up into two different sessions. But this does bring us to a wrap covering our dermatoses of pregnancy, four traditionally accepted ones with one thrown in there as the fifth one, although that's kind of controversial, called the triple P. So I hope you found this helpful. As always, we're thankful for you, and we're glad that you're part of our podcast community. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.